Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We are continuing along in part 8 of this 12-part series that takes us through the entire book of Acts, 28 chapters. We are presently in chapter 15, uh, which we began last time. Very important section of scripture and a lot of important things that we can learn from this particular event in the early church history. Um, as always, I want to mention that the notes and recordings of all of these studies are available um, electronically through our website, also through the MixLR uh, website. The church website is New Life Church md.org and you can look for all of the notes and studies uh, there. If you're listening online at mixlr.com, uh, you want to follow the broadcast name New Life Church, and that will also give you access to all of the audio recordings, not the notes, just the recordings. The notes you'll have to get through our website. Okay, we're on page 165, if you're following along in the notes. And as I mentioned, we just began last time introducing what is commonly referred to as the Jerusalem Council. And we've already read the first 21st verses of Acts 15. We're not going to read those again. But just a real quick recap so we know where we're going here. There were some believers, Jewish converts to Christ, that were of the party of the Pharisees. Remember, they're very strict Orthodox Jews. They had now come to Christ, but some of them had come to Antioch and were teaching the believers in the church there that even the Gentiles needed to follow the laws of Moses, including circumcision and all the other uh, customs and traditions, in order to be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas heard about this, it brought them into sharp dispute and debate with them. And I want to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. They understood immediately the seriousness of this matter. And obviously, the fact that they convened a council in Jerusalem with all of the apostles and elders to discuss this matter shows us how big a deal it was. It was a very serious matter, and it required very careful prayer, thought, and attention because this could have ripped the church in shreds. It could have literally divided the church. Um, but as we're going to see, uh, God gave great wisdom to the leaders as they prayed and sought the Lord, and particularly through the scriptures, some real wisdom emerged to help guide them through this very difficult time in early church history. So, basically, what it boils down to is, do Gentiles, non-Jewish people, do the Gentiles also have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved? They've already come to Christ. 
they put their faith in Jesus, but these folks were saying, that's good, but you still need to keep everything that Moses wrote. So, the dispute, as we mentioned, was very fierce. This was a big deal. And I want to mention again, thank God for church leaders like Paul and Barnabas, who immediately discerned and recognized the seriousness of this issue. There are a lot of issues that arise in churches. Some of them are not at all serious. And yet, some of them have resulted in church splits, including what color carpet to put in the church sanctuary. I'm not making that up. A church split over that very matter. That's ridiculous. But, when it comes to the heart and soul of the gospel, that's a different matter. And there are certain truths, certain basic foundations of our Christian faith that are not negotiable. And Paul and Barnabas realized this issue at hand was one of those non-negotiables. Is salvation by grace alone, or do we need some Moses and some grace to be saved? And Luke, the writer of Acts, also understood the weight and the import of this issue, and that's why he devotes quite a bit of time in the book of Acts to this whole controversy and the council that was convened in Jerusalem to discuss it. So, they've all arrived in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, other apostles and elders are there, the meeting has begun, and we ended last time in verses 5 and 6, with the members of the party of the Pharisees, these believers who were still saying, we also need to keep the law of Moses, they stood up and shared their basic point. And so in verses 5 and 6, we'll read again. Then some of the believers, notice they're believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, thank God some Pharisees got saved, but they still have some of that Pharisee in them. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So, this is the question. We're not talking specifically about the Jews now. Gentiles who are coming to Christ, they must also be circumcised, and obey all of the law of Moses. And it says the apostles and elders met to consider this question. So, after prayer, careful thought, and consideration, they've now begun this conference or council, and this is the main issue. Should a Gentile believer be required to keep the law of Moses. And there are four apostles who are going to give uh, speeches in this council addressing the matter. The first will be the Apostle Peter, 
then Paul and Barnabas together, and then finally the Apostle James. Now, let's look first at what Peter has to say. Starting with verse 7, we'll read down to verse 11. After much discussion, Luke doesn't record all of that, he gets right to the important stuff. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Of course, referring to his visit to Cornelius. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So, Peter, having already discussed at length his visit to the house of Cornelius and how God moved there, he makes mention of that again and implies that all present had already heard that testimony. He says, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So, this is a very important testimony. And there are many things that Peter points out here that you and I need to also learn from what happened in the household of Cornelius. He lists several important points. Let's look at these. Number one, you'll remember in Acts 10, they're all seated there, Peter is preaching the gospel, and suddenly the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they're all baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in other tongues. So the first point that Peter makes, they heard the gospel and believed without doing anything else. They weren't circumcised, they didn't keep any of the laws or customs of Moses. All they did was hear Peter preach, and they believed him. Okay? That's very important. All they did was believe. No other works. They certainly didn't even know all of the law of Moses, and they didn't have to keep the law of Moses to get saved. Number two, and this one's very important, God deliberately, in this case, it's normally the other way around, but in this case, he gave them the Holy Spirit first, and then required them to take water baptism. The normal order is repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But he deliberately did it the other way around for this reason. We might even have to say, well, they had to take water baptism at least, before God would give them the Holy Spirit. No, they didn't do anything. They didn't do any works at all. They just believed the gospel, and they got saved, baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
So the second point that Peter makes here is extremely important. God gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit before they had any opportunity to perform any religious act or ceremony. Openly showing that God was accepting them just as they were. Those are very important words that Peter uses. He says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. So this was a public display, a demonstration from heaven on the part of God, showing everyone there that he was accepting these Gentiles just as they were. They didn't have to do anything to earn the gift. It's free. The gift of salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, and this is a big one, this one takes time for the Jewish people to really accept in the early church. God made no distinction between these Gentiles and the Jews. No distinction. We've, we've gone through this before, but let me just mention again. It was centuries of these people hearing, you're different, you're separate, don't mingle with the nations, you're God's people. That was ingrained in them. And now suddenly, God tears down the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, and he says, okay, no more distinction. I'm going to treat all of you exactly the same. And fourthly, Peter says, God purified their hearts. How? By some washing, some religious ceremony, something in the law of Moses? No, he's very clear. Their hearts were purified by faith. God made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Not by circumcision, not by any other work. By faith they were purified. So, the example of what happened in the initial offering of the gospel to the Gentiles is very significant. And Peter, with the wisdom of God, is able to shine light on that experience and use it to sort of establish the foundation in the early church of what salvation is all about. He makes it very clear it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Period. It's by faith that the heart is purified. Period. Cornelius and his household believed the word of God and they were saved and accepted by God and baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, the question is, do Gentiles have to take circumcision and observe the law of Moses? Well, Peter gives a very simple answer to the question. No. No. We believe it is through the grace of of Jesus Christ, 
that we are saved, not by observing Moses, not by circumcision. Then Peter charges these Pharisees, these Judaizers, with testing God. Let's read that again. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? What's he talking about? Well, it seems clearly that Peter is referring to a teaching he had heard Jesus give when he was here on earth, recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. Let's read a few of these verses. Matthew 23, verses 1 to 4, and then we'll jump down to verse 13. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, remember these are members of the party of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. This is still before the cross, so he's telling Jews, yes, you must still obey everything that Moses says. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Verse 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So Peter charges these believing Pharisees with testing God by putting a heavy yoke of bondage on the necks of Gentile believers, and then Peter says this, we weren't even able to bear that yoke. Why are you putting it on them? The Pharisees didn't obey all those things. They were hypocrites. So why are you playing the game now with the Gentiles? No one can keep all these rules and laws. They're like yokes, heavy bondages, chains that you're trying to wrap around their necks. Why are you testing God in this way? And of course, Jesus in Matthew 11 had said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Not the heavy yoke of the law and the Pharisees, but his yoke. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Keep in mind that word easy. It's at the center of this whole discussion, and it's going to come out again, uh, particularly in the last speech, the one given by the Apostle James. So, here we are so far. Peter says the Experience with the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius teaches us a lot about salvation and what the Gentiles must do to be accepted by God. Basically, all they have to do is believe the gospel. 
believe the Word of God. Secondly, you're trying to put that yoke on Gentiles is testing God. Because even the Jews couldn't bear the weight of that heavy yoke. Why are you now trying to put it on the Gentiles? And then, as I mentioned, Peter concludes his remarks with a simple yet very powerful answer to the whole question. Do Gentiles need to keep the law of Moses? His answer is no. (laughs) One word, no. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. You see, the apostles understood this question was not a little side issue. It was hitting at the heart and soul of the gospel. The very foundation of the Christian faith was under attack here, and it still is today. I mentioned this last week. It's amazing how this junk still tries to creep into the Christian church, and it comes in many, many different forms. And I'm not trying to be critical of anyone, but you have many of these Jewish messianic groups that have arisen, which are not Jews. Most of them are Gentiles who are singing in Hebrew, doing Israeli dances, and keeping all the feasts of Moses from the Old Testament. Peter's answer is very simple. No! Gentiles don't need to do all of that. It's by grace and grace alone. And Paul would add later in his writings to the Romans, if you add anything to grace for salvation, it nullifies the grace. It's no longer grace. If you mix a little bit of works in there, it's enough to nullify the whole thing. It's either all grace or no grace. It's either all works or all grace. Peter says it's all grace. We are saved just as they are, the Gentiles. Reinforcing this argument again, that God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Jews are not saved by keeping the law of Moses. Jews are saved the same way Gentiles are, through the grace of God by believing in, (coughs) in Jesus Christ. At that point, in verse 12, it says the whole assembly became silent. Obviously, this was a powerful message that Peter gave, but we're not done yet. It leads right into the next address to the council given by Paul and Barnabas. But notice, the order changes again from Paul and Barnabas back to Barnabas and Paul. That's no accident. They're in Jerusalem now. And Barnabas is better known. He's very highly respected in the Jerusalem church by all of the Jewish leadership there. So he's mentioned first. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done 
among the Gentiles through them. So here again, they're giving testimony, as did Peter, of what God has been doing with the Gentiles. So no doubt they went into a lot of detail about all the miracles, all the ways in which God had worked and moved through them in their first missionary trip uh, throughout the Gentile world. So, Paul and Barnabas go into great detail, and Luke doesn't give us all the details because he already did that in chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. We, we already have uh, those testimonies. He doesn't give that again. He wants to stay focused on the issue. And after the speech given by Peter, and then again after hearing from Barnabas and Paul, uh, this thing is getting clearer and clearer. God apparently doesn't care about Gentiles being circumcised or keeping the law of Moses. He's been visiting them in many, many places, healing them, baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. They've been responding by faith, and they've been transformed, their hearts purified by faith through the grace of Jesus Christ. But now we come to the final speech, and this one is kind of like the closing argument in a court case. This is James. Now, this is not James, the brother of John, because he's dead. He was already put to death by Herod in Acts chapter 12. This is James, the Lord's brother. And he had become a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church by this time. And he's the author of the epistle that bears his name. James, the writer of the epistle to James, of James. Okay, so James stands up and he says, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. Now you have to carefully analyze those words. Simon knows, I'm sorry, James knows he's speaking to a Jewish audience, primarily a Jew Jewish audience. And he kind of plays with the words that Peter spoke when he was talking about his ministry in the house of Cornelius. And he very masterfully uses this to address his Jewish audience. And here's what's going on. He says, God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. Well, he started in the house of Cornelius. Now he's sweeping across the nations, saving Gentiles, calling out from the nations a people for himself. We call them Christians. Well, the picture that James is giving here 
is that just as God, in his loving kindness, took the nation of Israel out of all the other nations back at Mount Sinai and told them, you're my people, you're my peculiar people, my treasured possession, just as God took Israel out from the Gentiles in the Old Testament, so now he's showing his love for the Gentiles by calling out from the nations a people for himself, the Christian church, the Christian believers. But then the next words of James are the most powerful. He goes on and says the following, The words of the prophet, prophets, sorry, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And then he's going to quote from an obscure passage in the book of Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. As it is written, quote, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. Now, this passage, probably no one in the council had ever really seriously considered it. And it's just the Holy Spirit that inspired James with this portion of Scripture. But it is profound. Absolutely profound. First of all, the prophecy refers to a day, a time of restoration, where not the tabernacle of Moses but rather the tabernacle of David was going to be rebuilt or restored. And if you're not a real good Bible student, you might be wondering, what the heck is David's tabernacle? Never even heard of that one. I know there was a tabernacle of Moses. What's David's tabernacle? Well, we're going to talk about that because that's what Amos predicts, that there's a time coming where God is going to rebuild not the tabernacle of Moses, but the tabernacle of David. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and, here's the key, and all the Gentiles who bear my name. Gentiles who bear my name. This is an Old Testament prophet. This is an Old Testament prophecy. But Isaiah and a number of the prophets foresaw a day when Jew and Gentile would see the light of salvation. So, a couple of key points in this prophecy that we want to look more closely at. Number one, the promise of the rebuilding or the restoring of David's tabernacle. Secondly, 
the purpose of this restoration would be so that men may seek the Lord. And thirdly, it's very clear, this is going to involve Gentiles who are also seeking the Lord. Not only that, they're now bearing God's name. Gentiles who bear my name. Now, I'm not sure what the people thought at first as James quoted this verse, but I'm sure the weight of it hit them almost immediately. Wow! It's not the tabernacle of Moses that God wants to rebuild. That's what we're talking about here. Should we rebuild the ruins of Moses? Should we make all these Gentiles keep the law of Moses? James says no. God doesn't want to rebuild Moses. He wants to rebuild David. David's fallen tent or tabernacle. What is the purpose of this? Is it to make Gentiles become Jews? No. It's so that Gentiles will bear God's name and that they may seek the Lord. Now, let's talk about David's tabernacle. We could spend hours on this, but I'm going to try to keep it brief. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we read about King David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. It had been many years since the ark had been there in the city of God, and this was a great celebration, a great ceremony of bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. Let's read from verse 16, 2 Samuel 6. It says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, that's David's wife, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, listen carefully, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest, from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Remember, tent or tabernacle are synonymous. You're not going to find a whole lot more in Scripture about the tabernacle of David. That's it. That's it. What was it? It was a tent with the ark inside of it. That's it. That's the tabernacle of David. The ark of the covenant inside a tent. We're not even given the details about the tent. It doesn't matter. It was just a tent. Tent with the ark of God's glory inside of it. That's what Amos says God is going to restore in the last days. Now, we like to study the tabernacle of Moses, 
because it gives us many marvelous types and shadows of the New Testament salvation, the New Testament church, the, the kingdom of God, the heavens, so many things we can learn from the tabernacle of Moses. But it's merely a shadow. It's not the real thing. And there's nowhere in Scripture that an Old Testament prophet says, in the last days I'm going to raise up Gentiles to return to the law of Moses, keep all of the feasts, Passover, uh, Feast of Tabernacles, and all the other feasts, and follow all my laws, eat kosher foods, speak in Hebrew, and imitate all the dances that have been passed down from the Jewish people. You'll not find it anywhere in the Old Testament. This is the only prophecy concerning the rebuilding of a tabernacle. And it's not even Moses' tabernacle. It's David's fallen tabernacle. Now, in the tabernacle of Moses, it takes about 50 chapters in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, some in Deuteronomy, 50 chapters of the Old Testament to explain all of the complex details of that tabernacle. All kinds of details. How many bases, how many poles, how many curtains, how much this weighs, what color this has to be, how long that has to be, and on and on and on. It was extremely complicated to enter into that tabernacle and have any kind of uh, relationship with the presence of God. Very complicated order of worship, very strict rules. Matter of fact, only priests were allowed into the tabernacle proper. The regular Jewish people could only come into the outer court. They were not allowed into the tent. Only the priests and the Levites could go into the holy place, and the third place, the most holy place, only the high priest could go one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. So, very strict rules, very complicated order and design that had to be followed to a T, or you died if you didn't follow all the rules and all of those steps given in those 50 chapters in the Old Testament. By contrast, remember I told you to remember the word easy from Matthew 11. My yoke is easy. That's the big word to remember here. David's tabernacle was so simple. It was just a tent with the ark of God's glory, the presence of God inside it. David was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. He was not a priest. He was a king. And yet, we just read that after he, my goodness, even under the laws of Moses, only certain Levites were allowed to get near the ark or they died. 
Here, it says David is in this tent with the ark right in front of him. It's amazing. I want to read this again from 2 Samuel. The ark of the Lord was entering the city of David uh, when the king uh, brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David pitched for it. David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. He's not allowed to do that. He was way ahead of his time. David, of course, is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. He's also a type and shadow of a new covenant, a New Testament believer, who doesn't rebuild the tabernacle of Moses, but he's found a new and a living way, a much easier way, into the holiest of all, right into the presence of God. I don't know if you can get this picture, but it blesses me every time I try to picture this. Here's a tent with the ark inside of it. And David goes in there whenever he wants to seek the Lord. How easy is that? That's the word to remember when you think of David's tabernacle. It was simple. It was easy. Anybody could come in there and worship God and seek the Lord. Remember the words of Amos. It centers on the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David so that men may seek the Lord. And I would add, easily. God is going to make it very easy now, even for Gentiles to seek God the Lord. So, it was easy for David to come into the presence of God in his tent, and that's the real sense of what James is telling everybody in this Jerusalem council. Now, throughout the book of Acts, uh, it has been repeatedly emphasized that through the resurrection an exaltation of Jesus, called the Son of David, God fulfilled His promises to the house of David, the throne of David, the kingdom of David. There are a lot of references I've given in the notes in the book of Acts, chapter 2, chapter 13. We're not going to go back and look at those. They're there for your reference. This may also be what James is talking about here, the rebuilding of David's tent. Here's how James ties all of this together. Quote, verse 19, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Remember the word easy? That sums it all up. One word. Don't make it difficult for the Gentiles. Peter said, don't put a heavy yoke on their necks. You weren't even able to bear it. Why are we trying to 
bring all these bondages and chains and laws and regulations. When God has prophesied through Amos, he wants to make it simple, like he did in the days of David. It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I put that in bold uh, print here, and I think every one of us needs to take a real careful look at that. This is the word of the Lord. Don't make it difficult for a Gentile to turn to God. In other words, when we're sharing Christ with an unsaved person, it should be easy. Jesus said it's easy. Just come to me. All you that are burdened, come to me with all your sins, all your sicknesses, all your problems. My yoke is easy. If you'll come to me, I'm going to make it easy for you. Salvation is by grace. It's not by works. It's not by the sweat of your brow. It's by faith and faith alone. When James says we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles, there's a play on words here that doesn't really come through in the English, but looking at the original Greek word, it goes back to what Peter was talking about, how these Judaizers were testing God in trying to bring these heavy yokes and put them on the necks of the Gentiles. The word difficult here, making it difficult, literally means to harass, to annoy, or to trouble. In other words, reading between the lines, James and Peter are both telling these guys, you're annoying, you're harassing the church. You're trying to bring people back under a bondage that even you couldn't handle. Why are you harassing these people? Why are you annoying them? Telling them they need to be circumcised. Telling them they can only eat kosher food. Telling them they need to keep all the feasts and follow the 640 uh, commandments of Moses. What foolishness! Stop harassing the Gentile believers. Don't make it difficult for them. I don't know about you, but I'm extremely glad to hear these words, that salvation is by faith and faith alone. Salvation is through God's grace and God's grace alone. I can't add anything to it. And God made it easy for you and me to be saved. Contrast how complicated it was for one person out of the entire nation of Israel, just one person to come into the most holy place only for one day out of the year. (laughs) One person, one day out of the year, all the other days of the year, and all the other people are outside. How difficult it was to come into the holiest of all. The writer of Hebrews comes along and says, Hallelujah for the grace of God. He's made a new and a living 
way, and I would put in parentheses, easy also, a new and a living way into the holiest of all. That's the holy of holies. Well, it was pretty easy for David to come into the holy of holies. There wasn't an outer court, a holy place, and a most holy place. His tent was the most holy place. So as soon as he walked into the tent, he's there before the Shekinah glory. He's there in the presence of God. That's how easy it was in the tabernacle of David. That's how easy God has made it for us now through the blood of Jesus Christ. A new and a living way. We approach God in full assurance of faith, not by keeping a whole bunch of laws and ceremonies and religious works, but coming by faith in full assurance of faith. So why make it difficult? Why annoy people? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> why annoy people with a whole bunch of laws and rules and bondages when God is saying, uh-uh, I want to make it easy now for Gentiles to come to me. Come to me. Take my yoke. It's easy. Now, Jesus didn't directly address this matter of requiring Gentiles to be circumcised. I'm sorry, James didn't. In his speech, James didn't come right out and say, uh, Gentiles, you don't need to be circumcised. But anybody there who had ears to hear, putting together Peter's comments, Barnabas and Paul's comments, and now especially what James has just said. Anybody with ears to hear understands that's it. We're going to stop troubling and harassing any Gentile believers with any of Moses' demands, including circumcision. Here's the really good news in a nutshell. God never intended for this thing to be hard. God never intended for the Christian life to be grievous, oppressive, or burdensome for anyone. That's what it says in 1 John 5.3. That's not God's plan. And if you and I are finding this burdensome, wearisome, weighed down with so many rules and laws and we know we're not measuring up and we're feeling condemned most of the time or we get real proud once in a while because we keep a few of the laws. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we mentioned last week, that's what Paul addresses the Galatian church about. And he's very strong with them there. I'm afraid you have fallen from grace. I'm afraid that my labors with you have been in vain. That's strong language. But the truth of the matter is, when you and I stop trusting in the grace of God, and we start trusting in our own performance for our salvation and for our acceptance with God, we're in trouble. Now, Grace is supposed to result in good works. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about trying to earn 
acceptance with God. We're accepted just the way we are. Imagine again this picture. Peter's preaching to a room full of Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. None of them are circumcised as far as we know. They're all unclean as far as the law of Moses. So you've got this room full of unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles. And from heaven, God announces, I'm accepting them. How does he do that? He baptizes them all in the Holy Spirit. While Peter was preaching, they didn't have a chance to do anything. And God deliberately did that to show salvation including the baptism in the Holy Spirit, is not because of anything you and I do. It's not based on our performance. It's a free gift of grace. Then in verse 20, he gives some further advice, which we'll follow up more on next time and see how they implement this. Here's his advice. Instead, Don't make it difficult. Don't make it hard. Instead, we should write to them. We're going to draft a letter. And in that letter, we're going to tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, and abstain from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. That's it. That's all you need to tell them. Don't eat any food polluted by idols. Don't commit sexual sins. And avoid eating meat of an animal that's been strangled or with its blood. Now, at first glance, you might be confused. It might seem, wait a minute, James is making them follow a list of laws. He's just reversed his whole position, and now he's enforcing another form of legalism. This is not legalism. He is not in any way, shape, or form saying Gentiles need to do these things to be saved. And he's certainly not telling them they all need to be circumcised, they all need to keep the feasts, customs, and all the laws of Moses. His advice has nothing to do with salvation. That issue had already been settled in the speeches delivered. This advice is some very practical wisdom that he's sharing knowing that now that God has broken down the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, he's made no distinction between them, they're going to be Fellowshipping together, that's God's plan. Make Jew and Gentile one body. So they're all going to be in the same church, they're all going to be eating together, they're all going to be visiting one another's homes and having fellowship. We need to lay down a few practical guidelines here so that the Jewish brothers are not stumbled by the behavior of the Gentile believers. So, number one, avoid any foods that have been offered to idols. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 8. Now, 
If you eat something unknowingly that was dedicated to some idol, it's no big deal. But for conscience sake, he says, if you know that meat has been offered to an idol, don't eat it. And especially don't eat it if it stumbles or offends your Christian brother. Secondly, and both of these have to do with foods, forbidden foods. One, foods offered to idols. Secondly, the meat of strangled animals and blood. By the way, this prohibition was given long before the Law of Moses. It's way back in Genesis 9, when Noah and his sons got off the ark. So it applies to all mankind, not just the nation of Israel. So this one in particular has nothing to do with the Law of Moses. And while obedience to these simple instructions again, was not a condition for salvation. It was simply to maintain peace in the fellowship of all the Christians in the early church and to avoid being a stumbling block to another brother or causing divisions or conflicts in the early church. In most of the cities, the Gentile believers had to live alongside Jewish believers who had been brought up to observe all of the Levitical food restrictions and the the whole law of Moses. If there was going to be this fellowship and freedom between Jew and Gentile, certain simple guidelines were needed to enable them to live and eat together in harmony. It's really that simple. James is not saying you need to do this to be saved. The third rule is different, however. Tell even the Gentile believers to abstain from sexual immorality. That's different from these food restrictions. Nowhere in Scripture has that command ever been revoked. Sexual immorality has always been wrong, and it always will be wrong. I don't care what laws they pass here in the U.S. or in other countries. It really doesn't matter to me. That's not my law. My law is the Word of God. And God's Word says fornication is sin. Adultery is sin. Homosexuality is sin. And on and on we could go with the list. Abstinence from sexual immorality is something else that James wanted to stress even to Gentiles who were coming out of darkness into salvation. Tell them, instruct them very carefully, they need to repent of any sins of sexual immorality. Paul would later teach the Corinthians that these sins are in a class all of their own. It brings defilement on the body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. They're actually sinning against their own body. And then, in verse 21, he explains why these directives, especially the ones about the foods, 
have to be included in this letter, because Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. As I mentioned, you had Jews living right alongside Gentiles in all of these different cities. And so, there were bound to arise situations where you have Jews and Gentiles eating together, having fellowship together in the church. And that's why a few simple guidelines were given to the Gentile believers to be sensitive to their Jewish brethren and not to stumble or offend them. Next time, we'll pick it right up here and look more carefully at the contents of the letter that is drafted by the Jerusalem Council and how, after these speeches by Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and James, the whole issue was resolved. There was peace, again, there was unity, they were all one heart and one mind again, and a great catastrophe was averted. God maintained a beautiful peace and order in the church going forward from this uh, particular controversy. More about that next time. We're out of time for now. Let's close in prayer here. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the many marvelous truths we can learn from the scriptures. And certainly the scriptures we've been looking at tonight are no exception. Foundational, important truths that every one of us needs to know and understand for our faith. That our salvation is based on faith and faith alone. Not by keeping any rules or laws, but simply through faith in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is not based on our performance. It is purely, totally, and exclusively by and through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we rejoice tonight, especially at that one word, easy. You wanted to make it easy for Gentiles to seek the Lord, to come into the presence of God, and to be saved. You want to rebuild, restore, the tabernacle of David. A simple little tent with your glory and your presence inside, inviting all, Jew and Gentile, to come in now through a new and a living way into the holiest of all, through the blood of Jesus. Simple, easy, not difficult, but not cheap. A great price was paid to make this salvation free for us. We thank you tonight for the cross. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. We thank you for the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, took those sins in his own body on the cross, being judged, condemned, and put to death on that cruel cross as a sinner, as a condemned, cursed criminal for our sakes. And God, you raised him from the dead to assure us that that free gift 
of salvation is now ours through faith and through faith alone. Thank you, O God, for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for this easy way that we can seek you and come into your presence. Father, bless each and every one that has been with us in this study tonight. Uh, Give us spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Help us to truly understand the foundations of our faith, the foundations of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would in no wise be moved from that bedrock of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, the foundation, the rock, the chief cornerstone. Father, I pray your blessing on each one. Bless us, keep us, make your face shine upon us, be gracious to us always. Lift up your countenance upon us.